Short reverse shot. I'm Matt Risby, and joining me, as always, via the miracle of satellite technology, is the boy in the striped pajamas. It's Ed Davis. How are you doing, sir? All right. Yeah, good. Horrified by that choice of film mm. reference. Um, well, are you horrified more that uh, I've kind of attempted to trivialise the Holocaust by uh, saying that, or the fact that I picked a film that trivialises the Holocaust? It's a mixture of the two, I think. Maybe mm. more the second, because I think that film is very cloying and exploitative of a, a, terrifying, a terrible thing that happened in history. But yeah, yeah, it's, yeah, it's the sort of thing, whenever I hear that title, I think, ugh, that, that film was uh, very, very horrible in a lot mm. of ways. It's pretty ghastly all round. Uh, yeah, I kind of hate that that film, like, like for, for so many reasons. Anyway, I don't know why we want to kind of uh, get started on that foot and um, we've had kind of a po- opposing weeks this week you've been kind of uh, run off your feet at work and I've had the way whole week off and I went to an otter sanctuary oh wow that sounds yeah very, I very can cute. now officially cross the uh, watch a giant otter take a shit off my life list because I've done that now and I can add it to mine as something to aim <laughs> for yeah giant otters are are, are are kind of well named they are enormous how how big do they compare to say species of dog? Mm, I'd say kind of a medium dog, medium about the size dog. of a lab- Labrador. Wow! Right. But with with the advantage of having little little hands, mm-hmm. and which I like beavers and otters because they've got little hands, and not many animals have got little hands, and I quite like it when they've got little hands, um, and they've got like tails, and they're all slippery and that. They're kind of weird animals. Uh, is it a fish? Is it a mammal? I don't think anyone's sure. Um, scientists are working around the clock to get an answer to that question. But anyway, uh, what's been going on in the world of film this week has been a busy one for, for Michael Fassbender. He's been kind of connected to every single biopic under the sun. Plus also, I, I was shocked to, to see that he's playing the lead in Assassin's Creed. When did that happen? That's been uh, mooted for a very long time, but Assassin's Creed, Assassin's Creed is one of those films, those video game to film adaptation things that have been talked about for a very long time because it's a game that has a very simple premise that you can easily apply to film because it's just someone stabbing people, you know, mm-hmm. and some time travel-y stuff. So it's it's something that you could easily see working as a kind of very mediocre film, uh, as is often the case with video games. But I, I, I was kind of thinking it was going to be one of those things like the Uncharted movie where it was going to be a thing that was going to be in development for a very, very long time and never actually happen. So... To see him uh, cosplaying essentially as uh, as one of the characters uh, was not exactly shocking, but the sort of thing that made me think, "Oh, this is like an actual thing; it's actually happening." Mm. Who's directing it? Like, and isn't Marion Cotillard in it as well? Is there? Are we finally going to see perhaps a movie game, uh, at a movie kind of game to movie adaptation that doesn't completely blow chunks? I I wouldn't go that far, but it does have some interesting people. The guy who's directing it is a guy called Justin Kurzel, who is... Oh, did Snowtown. Yes, who did Snowtown and has also directed the version of Macbeth that uh, Cotillard and Fassbender are in together. So Hmm. clearly those three are like working together. 
and I think it'll be interesting to see how that turns out. Uh, I want to, it'd be I, I would love it if they really committed to it and he made it like Snowtown and from what I hear Macbeth and made it really punishing. But mm. uh, it, similar to when you see all of these indie directors going and working for Marvel, you do get the sense that there's probably a, it's quite limiting how much they can actually get away with when you get handed something that's a really big brand name like Assassin's Creed. Mm. I suppose it's a natural step to go from Macbeth to Assassin's Creed because Macbeth is, as we've said before, one of Shakespeare's stabbiest plays. <laughs> yeah, it's, it has more knives than, uh, say, A Midsummer Night's Dream, which is notoriously low on stabs. Mm. It's high on fairies, low on stabs. Um, anyone... The weirdest campaign slogan I've ever heard. <laughs> Do anyone know what's going on on the set of Woody Allen's new film? Because Bruce Willis has been fired slash replaced slash resigned and uh, his role taken by Steve Carell, which doesn't seem to be the natural choice to replace, but somehow has, has happened. Yeah, I mean, this is it's been a while since Woody Allen has fired someone or replaced part members of his cast. I think you have to go back to sort of the 90s for something like that happening. You know, he used to uh, just like, kick people out of films all the time famously he replaced the entire cast of september pretty much uh and he fired michael keaton from the purple rose of cairo so he's got past form in this but it, he's kind of settled down i think and it makes you wonder if bruce willis was a real dick because apparently he's based on things that kevin smith and others have said he's apparently not that easy to work with and mm. uh, i kind of from what i've heard apparently he was not very good at remembering lines, which I think is the sort of thing that you really should be able to do if you're an actor. And apparently he uh, wasn't willing to do that, which is which suggests that he really must have pushed Woody Allen a bit because Woody Allen famously will go up to actors and just kind of say, uh, you know, the script's not very good, feel free to change it. Which, mm. you know, if someone's just showing up and they're not remembering their lines at all, maybe suggests they're not going to get on with him. Hmm, Yeah. I think that remembering your lines and standing up is like the two things that, that an actor should be able to do. And Bruce Willis has mastered standing up. <laughs> um, just a shame he can't remember his lines. I know I would have thought that Woody would have been fairly kind of easy with a script. I don't think he'd probably be one to stick to the lines so much. Um, kind of let people have a bit of, uh, uh, of licence. But maybe Bruce Willis doesn't want that. I think uh, yeah. also Bruce Willis is probably used to doing lots of setups and kind of having the time to kind of make something work a little bit because he's a big movie star and he can do that. He can ask for more takes. Whereas Woody Allen, uh, similarly to Clint Eastwood, basically does one or two takes and then gets on with it. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Not really a natural fit, was it, uh, Bruce Willis and, and Woody Allen? Yeah. Moving on kind of slightly from that, there was a big interview this week with Quentin Tarantino, uh, who is... Uh, did you read it, Ed? Uh, I read chunks of it because it was quite a lengthy one and i just mm. you know kind of control left to when he was talking about things like true detective and it follows <laughs> yeah because uh, tarantino whenever he's got a film out is happy to kind of espouse his kind of world view and he's kind of helpfully fixed it follows for 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 those who didn't like it he kind of said what he he would do to change it um he also kind of said something on the lines of talking when he was talking about david o russell he said David O. Russell is one of the best uh, directors working with actors, along with myself, uh, <laughs> working today. I'm just like, don't say that, mate. Yeah, 
At this point, I kind of get the sense that Quentin Tarantino has a quite high opinion of himself. Hmm. Yeah. There's just something about about him that suggests that maybe he thinks he's all right at what he does. Yeah, and he is all right at what he does, I guess. So we could, probably could let him off. But I've I've actually got around to watching the, the Hateful Eight trailer this week, and I think Tarantino appears to be trolling the world <laughs> uh, in the sense that like he's so against digital projection and digital filmmaking. He's made a film in seventy millimeter and has kind of tried to persuade as many places as possible to show it in that format. I mean, I'd like to say that he really wants to make a film in seventy millimeter, but there's a lot of me that thinks it's it's two fingers up at the uh, at the digital age. Yeah, there is definitely that sense, and it's the fact that people who can show it in seventy millimeter will get it early, mm. which is you know obviously a big incentive for people to try and show it, and is the sort of thing that I imagine will have people hopping on you know long car journeys or getting in planes to try and see it two weeks early. Uh, if only kind of film critics wanting to watch it for end of year consideration. But I think the interesting thing about it also is that he's shot a film in 70 millimeter, which by most accounts takes place entirely in like two or three rooms, mm-hmm. which uh, appeals to me a great deal. You know, I'm a, I'm a big fan of the, uh, the film man of the West, which is kind of this great cinema scope uh, Western that takes pl- by Anthony Mann that for about, 80% of its running time is just these kind of great wide shots of the inside of a farm. And I like the idea, the kind of weird and perverse idea of taking a format that is designed for kind of grand vistas and saying, and it's mainly going to be close-ups of people in in a, a room because they're trapped together. Mm. And all good actors as well. Yeah, that is a that is a great cast and also some fabulous facial hair. Um, I, I shaved off the long beard that I had grown through just basically working too many hours and not really feeling up to shaving. And at one point I accidentally recreated Kurt Russell's kind of amazing weird beard. And I was very tempted to keep it for at least a day, but uh, I don't have the uh, well-earned confidence of Kurt Russell to carry that off. Sadly. Mm. Either you do yourself down, Ed. Um, <laughs> everyone. Should, I think that Kurt Russell facial hair should be mandatory. Uh, although people, the hipsters will get onto it and uh, it will just be a big, big, kind of uh, hoo-ha and we don't want that most um, hipsters do kind of look like macready at this point yeah i like to play a game is it a hipster or is it a homeless it's <laughs> it's it's getting harder it's getting harder every day erica monaconi is scoring the hateful eight which is something a, a, a bit of news that slipped me by yeah that is quite uh, exciting because i don't think he does as many scores these days i think he, he's slowing down from the fact that he's at least probably in his 80s at this point, uh, if not older. And also it makes an interesting kind of break from what uh, Tarantino said around about the release of Inglorious Bastards, where he basically said that he didn't like working with composers because he didn't feel that he... they they could ever match, like, the ideas that he had basically drawing from his record collection, Mm. which I think got a lot of people saying that maybe he doesn't really understand how creative partnerships work. So mm. uh, it'd be interesting to see what he comes up with to see if it's, especially if, you know, the question of whether the score will end up being some sort of, I don't know, like pastiche of older sounds or if it will be something kind of blaringly modern. Mm. Um, another bit of uh, kind of TV news that uh, I enjoyed this week is um, Amazon are making a TV series of Galaxy Quest. 
which for anyone who hasn't seen it is a wonderful film which uh, there's a lot of kind of uh, fun to be had in the kind of 90 or so minutes that it lasts. I'm not sure how or why a TV series of that is going to work. It does seem to be, you know, that this is something that you see a lot now, which is that there are, there's such a demand for TV and there's such a, a, a kind of plurality of outlets that people just go after anything that has name recognition to try and stand out. And Galaxy Quest was a film that did, I think, okay when it came out and it became kind of a big cult hit. Uh, I remember going to watch it with an audience a few years ago in a double wheel with Star Trek to the Wrath of Khan, which was great, except they showed Galaxy Quest first, which meant that people <laughs> kind of giggled a little bit during all the bits in Star Trek Wrath of Khan that felt a little kind of funny after watching a parody. Mm. But, you know, it's the sort of thing where they go for it and then you think, I'm not really sure how much you could really do with that because unless they're going to kind of expand the premise out and have it be that they're being mistook for heroes for 13 episodes at a time or whatever mm. then i don't see why you couldn't just make a uh a sci-fi comedy series that's not related to galaxy quest and it's kind of uh three amigos-esque premise mm. it means the three amigos I mean, it's uh, Three Amigos, Galaxy Quest, and Tropic Thunder mm. are the exact same film, uh, kind of three ways. Um, but yeah, I'm kind of interested to see how that pans out. Um, if they could get like... that cast together again, mm. then I'd be very interested. But if it's just the same premise with a new cast, it would be it would have to be really, really good to kind of warrant the whole remake treatment. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I do love Galaxy Quest, but yeah, I can't really see it. I always see it as a TV show. We had a new episode of WTF this week. Uh, we talk about that show quite a lot. It's a great podcast. Everyone should listen to it. But you listened to the Peter Bogdanovich episode this week. I did, yes. And it was great. Uh, I made a bet with myself that he would mention Orson Welles in the first 20 minutes. And I tell you, those first 16 minutes were quite worrying. <laughs> but then minute 17 rolled around and everything was gravy. But uh, yeah, it was a great. he's obviously a great interview. He's someone who is... Very lively, has a lot of great stories, met a lot of people, but he started it off on a note that kind of really annoyed me, which is where he talked about, he was talking to Mark Marin about the the fact when he was coming up as a film critic, you know, the, the film culture that existed in the 60s and 70s and things like that. And he was saying that a film culture in which people discuss film doesn't exist anymore. And that got me very annoyed because, you know, I'm on Twitter a lot and I go on websites and I think more people are talking about films now than they ever have. And it just struck me as kind of a very kind of crotchety old man sort of thing. Uh, and so it just made me want to say, uh, Peter Bogdanovich can take a flying fuck at a rolling donut. Wow. Um, I mean, but that's of course he's a great filmmaker. <laughs> well, I mean, he made a couple of good films. Let's not, let's not, uh, kind of uh, gloss over some of his kind of uh, shadier efforts. But I, I don't know, like, is Peter Bogdanovich a great filmmaker? I think he's someone who was derailed by some bad choices and some personal tragedy. Mm. But I think even something like The Cat's Meow is good fun, and his new one's meant to be pretty good. But I think you can't look at someone who made Targets, Last Picture Show, uh, Paper Moon, and What's Up Doc in a row and say that he's uh, he's not a kind of a, someone who ha at least had great talent. 
Hmm. He had something. The kids got something. It's just he made mask that film with Eric Stoltz. <laughs> um, when he like he plays a human potato. Yeah, Paul Bogdanovich has always kind of struck me as someone who would be kind of interesting to talk about, uh, to talk uh, on WTF. But then a lot of his kind of deeper kind of uh, issues have already been so well covered. Mm. You know, the whole kind of Polly Platt, Sybil Shepherd, Dorothy Stratton triumvirate of uh, kind of awfulness um, has been kind of uh, several thousand column inches filled with that. He does he does talk about that a little bit, but I think there is actually quite an interesting part in it where he talks about the, the production of Mask and talking about how it was his first film back after um, Dorothy Stratton's death and talked about how she was kind of an, uh, the reason why he took it because she was really interested in the Elephant Man and that got him, him interested in the idea of people being stared at for being different and things like that. But then he and then the studio tried to change the film by removing a lot of Bruce Springsteen songs that he wanted on the soundtrack, and he sued them and talked about how it was of a of the many bad moves he made in his career that was probably the worst. Right. Hmm. Why wouldn't the studio want Bruce Springsteen songs in it? I don't know. They wanted to replace them all with Pete Seeger songs, which is weird because Bruce Springsteen was the real Mask guy's favorite artist, and that's why they wanted to include them. Uh, and apparently that they've been reinstated on the director's cut because Bruce Springsteen basically said to Peter Bogdanovich, you can have them for free. So if nothing mm. else, it demonstrates that uh, Bruce Springsteen seems like a pretty solid dude. Mm. Bruce Springsteen also did an album of Pete Seeger covers uh, in kind of the mid-2000s. Not Pete Seeger, Bob Seeger. I don't know who Bob Seeger is. Bob Seeger is uh, he's kind of a someone who was quite big in the 80s, but not so big now. Made right. recording a song called Night Moves, which is fairly popular over here. Yeah, it, mm. it would have been more interesting if they'd chosen Pete Seeger songs for a film released <laughs> in the 1980s starring Cher. Yeah, yeah, We Shall Overcome Facial Disability. Um, <laughs> there you go, as a, as a folk gag for you there. Anyway, uh, that's enough of this week's news. We're going to talk about evolution this week. Why are we doing that, Ed? Because I think it's time that we talked about the less lesser known films of Ivan Reitman. Mm. So it's gonna be this, my super ex girlfriend. Was that him? Dave. <laughs> wow. Good grief. Draft Day. That one's particularly bad. Uh no, we're gonna talk about the way in which filmmakers evolve over time and you know, filmmakers who maybe start off working in one style and one kind of filmmaking or one particular genre and then kind of outgrow that and you know the the, the ways in which those evolutions affect a an art uh, the, the audience as well hmm interesting it's, it's kind of cool that we're talking about evolution when today i was listening to radio at work and uh, this song comes on uh, and i uh, have this instant reaction every time i hear this song which is wow this is a this is a really good tune it's kind of like a kind of uh driving kind of like 60s kind of psych um uh kind of anthem uh, I guess, and I'm like, oh man, this is this must be the Yardbirds or something. And then it always strikes me that that song is Pictures of Matchstick Men, and it's by Status Quo. Mm. <laughs> um, and I always think, how the fuck did they get from this to double denim, shoulder shaking, down, down, deeper and down? Yeah, mu- music was kind of my way into this as well, because I uh, was, a few months ago now, I was quite heavily into listening to the new Bell and Sebastian album. And 
Bell and Sebastian aren't a band I'm particularly fond of, but I do like a bunch of their songs. I did see them live when I was at uni a bunch because I was friends with people who were super into Bell and Sebastian. Mm-hmm. And their new album is, it kind of finds them moving away a little bit from the, the twee uh, kind of occasionally trumpet-infused folk indie of their earlier stuff. And they're, they're embracing the use of synths and kind of these big soundscapes and stuff. And it's not a great album but it's kind of interesting and i it was interesting when i was talking about how much i liked it on facebook that one of uh, my friends basically started talking about how much he hated it because it wasn't like what they were used to and i kind of got into a conversation with him about say that you know sometimes artists have to kind of explore what they want to explore you know if they keep doing the same thing they just become kind of ossified and boring so mm. even if you don't like something they do it's sometimes interesting to see a an artist try and tackle something that's perhaps not really you know their their thing Mm. i I suppose we'll kind of get to this in a second but kind of to carry on the music thing there um do you think that like experimentation and kind of uh shifts away from the norm in music um could very often be driven by boredom uh or kind of like just that deliberate attempt to not be kind of doing the same thing over and over again whereas films they cost a lot more money to make. Um, they generally kind of take a lot longer in terms of like the whole production cycle that you don't really have that kind of, oh, I'm going to make this kind of film now to kind of perhaps throw my fan base a curveball. Yeah, I think that that definitely plays a big part in it because if you're a, a solo artist or even if you're a band, you don't really have to convince that many people to let you make it. You know, if you're you 2 and you're bored of making stadium rock, then you can go and make something like Actung Baby. You know, mm. you can make something a little bit different, a little bit more electronic infused. Whereas, you know, if you're uh, Steven Soderbergh, to cite someone that we we talk about every so often on here, you have to convince an awful lot of people to let them let let you make your Cleopatra musical with music by They Might Be Giants. Mm. You know, that's that's something that's going to require a lot of meetings. Whereas, I think someone who has even artists that haven't been kind of like hugely successful, if they've got deals in place for their albums then there's a lot more freedom for them to basically say you know i'm bored of making this particular kind of music i want to try something a little bit different because i think it would be good for me to try it mm. the first person that i thought of when we talked when we kind of said that we do this is someone i mentioned earlier david o russell mm. um and um i thought about his first couple of films were kind of trenchantly indie films so you got uh, spanking the monkey a film that deals with a guy who wants to shag his own mum mm-hmm. um, and then flirting with disaster about, you know, a, a kind of like a madcap road movie about someone trying to find his true parents. Um, uh, but they're both very much kind of deeply uh, indie in their sensibilities. Now he is a regular kind of Oscar contender. He is now a someone who makes, in some senses, very kind of straightforward prestige pictures, which is kind of an odd thing to think but then i thought has he evolved that style or is this a consequence of his success i think it's it's very interesting because if you look at where he was before the fighter came out because there was a there was a long period of time like six years where he was pretty much persona non grata you mm. know he made i heart Huckabees, which wasn't very successful critically or commercially and then you know the the video of him screaming at Lily Tomlin became some became viral and I think that really hurt his reputation he tried to make uh, Nailed which 
fell through numerous times and kind of limped its way onto DVD earlier this year as Accidentally in Love. And he was someone who was kind of at a very, very low ebb for his career. And then he came back with The Fighter, which was a really good, really solidly well-made, really well-acted, but incredibly straightforward film that was missing a lot of this spiky energy that he brought to his early films. There wasn't really much in the way of, you know, kind of satire or in the way of kind of really engaging in the weird psychology of these characters. It was very much kind of, this is a biopic of these people and I'm going to tell it in a pretty straightforward, but, you know, still energetic energetic and fun way. And I feel like that was so successful that instead of, you know, going back to what he did well, he made Silver Lighting Playbook, which has a bit more of his personality to it, but it's still pretty straightforward and everything he's the the films he's worked on since then american hustle and from looks of it joy are kind of very much in that same mode it feels like he has struck upon a formula that works and uh, it seems to be intent on following that path for the for the foreseeable future Mm. um it's interesting just sorry throwing back to the tarantino interview that he said uh, one of the reasons that he likes David O. Russell and the way that he can be a great director of actors is because he works with people who aren't good-looking. Mm. And I thought, well, mm-hmm. yeah. I mean, Jennifer Lawrence and Bradley Cooper keep coming back for more. Um, and, um, you know, they're all right looking. I yeah. Guess. It's, seems like a silly point to me. Yeah, it's, it seems to be very odd. It seems to be more talking about films he was making 15 years ago. <laughs> But even then, he was working with George Clooney and Mark Wahlberg, so... <laughs> yeah, who were no slouches in the face department. No. Um, but yeah, so, like, that's an example of how of how success can contribute to the evolution of an artist's um, output. What other examples can you think of where um, you've seen a kind of, like, a real shift tonally or kind of thematically? Well, a, a big one, I think, the one of the first names that came up for me primarily because... There was a lot of discussion of his most recent film earlier on in the year or late last year was Paul Thomas Anderson, mm-hmm. who ha- I think has grown and shifted and changed immensely over the course of his career. Uh, if you look at stuff like Hard Eight and Boogie Nights and Magnolia, which are all really, really good films, uh, they all they all feel like they're indebted to other filmmakers. And similar, like Punch Drunk Love as well. They're all films that kind of feel more indebted to other filmmakers and that he is trying to use his influence to forge a vision of his of his own. And then you get kind of a big creative leap with There Will Be Blood, which really feels like he comes into his own in that regard. Uh, and that's kind of the point at which he seems to be going for a more experimental style, but still grafting it to a conventional story or relatively mm-hmm. conventional story. But then with The Master in Inherent Vice he's kind of gone into a place where he's making films that are very kind of obtuse and they are pretty much geared not to be accessible to people who, you know, may just want to, people who watched Boogie Nights and were able to access it because it's a really kind of fun, good time. They're films that really require you to work at it. Um, mm. and that That's kind of, seems to have alienated a lot of people whilst also making his fans kind of more fervent in their their love of his work. Yeah, if you look at Boogie Nights, it seems to be like a perfect amalgam of of Scorsese and Altman. But it was, I think his approach was a bit more self-conscious. Like, I think he knew that he was kind of tipping his hat to them. Mm. Um, um, And I think Magnolia is is a kind of 
that in that he kind of does definitely tip his hat to other filmmakers and 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 uh, styles, but he also then takes it a step on further than he did from Boogie Nights because Boogie Nights is still quite a conventional film, mm-hmm. um, whereas Magnolia is perhaps more unconventional. Um, and then he kind of follows that unconventional route a bit further with Punch Drunk Love, There Will Be Blood, and The Master. Yeah, he he, he is definitely someone who you can see that you can really chart a kind of expansion of his style over the course of his films. You can really feel each one feels more and more him. You know, he's moving further away from being a collection of influences to being a distinct kind of voice of his own. And, and similarly, I think if you look at someone like uh, Wes Anderson, no relation, he he kind of, over his films, over pretty much the same period of time, you can see him refining his style. Mm. Uh, so it's it's less a case of, like, he, he started, I think, with a distinct vision very early on, but he kind of chipped away at the things that weren't his vision over and over again until you get things like uh, Moonrise Kingdom and the Grand Budapest Hotel, where they are these kind of very small... Uh, intimate worlds that feel like they could only really have come from his mind. Do you, here's a question, uh, do you think that Wes Anderson's evolution to his kind of the complete realisation of his vision has been due to the fact that he can work with a bigger budget? It's very difficult to make your own self-contained world in which you have control over every element when you're working with very little cash. I think that is a big part of it. I think if you if you look at a lot of directors who get the opportunity to really kind of express themselves. It's usually because they either have huge successes or they have very moderate successes that allow them to kind of develop a relationship with studios that, you know, keep coming back to them and essentially say, you can do whatever you want as long as you don't go crazy on the budget. And obviously Wes Anderson's films have got increasingly more expensive as he's become more successful, but he's still not dealing in kind of you know, Christopher Nolan level, hundreds of millions of dollars. He's still kind of, he's a rare example of someone who works in kind of a mid-budget range, but mid-budget is more than enough to make the kind of films that he wants to make. Mm. Can you think of any examples of actors whose uh, kind of careers have evolved along a a kind of a certain path? One I'm kind of thinking of is someone mentioned uh, a few minutes ago, George Clooney, who Mm. uh, kind of made that leap from, uh, TV. I mean, before his kind of stint on AI, he was a kind of jobbing actor. He'd been in a lot of kind of pap, but then uh, he was kind of a heartthrob on television, and then tried to make that crossover quite quickly. Put him in stuff like The Peacemaker and Batman and Robin, and you know, kind of big films that he was expected to to sell on being a movie star. And he kind of almost had to kind of go back and become a movie star, and then go through the idea of being a movie star, then being a kind of producer someone who controls all the aspects of his of his filmmaking and then eventually a director uh, and this kind of hollywood kind of institution this kind of politically conscious artist who represents a kind of ideal rather than just being a face that smiles the one that kind of came to mind in thinking about this was someone we've talked about very recently which was eddie murphy mm. where for i said well, evolution not devolution <laughs> but he definitely changed i think you can definitely see for whatever reason possibly various legal reasons to do with him being caught with transsexual prostitutes he at a certain point decided he was going to become family friendly Mm -hmm. and there he pretty much tones down his entire persona to become something that's really acceptable to kind of a big mainstream audience Uh, and i think that that is a 
that is a kind of evolution. It's not necessarily one that goes in a way that results in particularly good work, mm. but you can definitely see him changing the kind of actor that he is in order to better fit, you know, kind of this particular mold that he set for himself uh, and how eventually that really ends in a kind of a complete creative dead end of things like imagine that uh, and meet Dave Mm. Uh, and which he seems to be wanting to try and break out with with his forthcoming role in a biopic about Richard Pryor where he plays Richard Pryor's dad mm. which was kind of officially confirmed this week uh, it's kind of the worst kept secret that <laughs> you know they're working I mean Lee Daniels have been tweeting pictures of him and Eddie Murphy like having script meetings and stuff but um, that's actually cause for excitement I think and, and probably kind of expe- expectation of something quite good because Lee Daniels is always interesting, I guess, mm. even though he might be very patchy. And Eddie Murphy, we know what he can do in the right part. So, yeah, high hopes for that. Yeah, hopefully the combination of two different kinds of craziness will will pre- present uh, produce something you know more vital than something that, than pretty much anything that Eddie Murphy's been involved with since you know Dreamgirls, which even then wasn't quite as vital as him as it is best. Mm. He talks about um, Paul Thomas Anderson kind of alienating his fan base well possibly kind of alienating some people with his kind of slightly more opaque films that he made more recently um can you think of any one directors in particular who um have kind of gone the other way who kind of uh, started off being kind of quite difficult and unwieldy and then have kind of toned down their style in order to kind of find mainstream success uh, the one that leaps to mind is david lynch who i think kind of can be said to have gone through pretty much uh, both ends of this spectrum in that he started with a razor head, which let's say is a difficult film. <laughs> mm-hmm. It's, it's something that, you know, was a midnight movie and was something that uh, I imagine people took a great deal of drugs to watch because it's, you know, this kind of surreal and horrifying uh, examination of whatever it's an examination of. He's very cagey about it. Um, but mainly people seem to think it's about the fear of fatherhood, which is the the explanation that makes the most sense to me, which means it's probably wrong. Um, But then, you know, he made The Elephant Man, which was nominated for a lot of Oscars and was still, compared to the sort of films it was nominated against or or that tend to get nominated for Oscars, it's still quite a tough film. Mm. You know, orally and visually, it's it's pretty punishing. But, you know, from there you get things like Blue Velvet, which again, away or um, particularly like reaching his peak with something like Twin Peaks, um, you know, he makes he he kind of sands down or maybe not sands down, but certainly kind of surrounds his style in something that's a little more accessible to audiences. Uh, and then after Twin Peaks, he he kind of clearly reached a level in which he was perfectly happy to make things like uh, Mulholland Drive and Lost Highway, where and. and particularly Inland Empire, where he just kind of goes back to exploring his kind of surreal and terrifying id. But mm. he, he's definitely someone who, for the middle part of his career, seemed to find a, a way to be himself in a way that had kind of reached out to a surprisingly broad audience. Mm. Yeah. It, it's kind of weird, isn't it, the way we talk about it and started talking about it with music, that, you know, we, my CD collection is littered with uh, bands who were great and you kind of saw them in kind of small clubs and then after a while there, you know, find a little bit of success, play bigger clubs and then all of a sudden they're in arenas and they can't play their kind of uh, punchy early stuff anymore because it doesn't get the crowd singing. So they turn to playing kind of bland anthems 
And it's kind of upsetting when that happens. Can you think of any filmmakers who have kind of followed that kind of, should we call it the Kings of Leon path? <laughs> sure. Uh, I think someone who I think, I I personally am not as big of a fan of this guy as a lot of people are, but he's certainly someone who I think follows that would be someone like Guy Ritchie, who emerged as a very distinct voice in, in British cinema and made a couple of films that were very much, uh, had a, his kind of distinct voice and were these kind of East End farces with kind of crazy names and that didn't take place in anything resembling the real world, but were kind of, you know, very energetic and entertaining. And, you know, at a certain point he became the guy who makes the Sherlock Holmes films, which again are, are pretty fun, but they are, you don't feel like, oh, this is a film that anyone other than Guy Ritchie could have made. Hmm. Yeah. Is that, it's kind of, you go from having your own voice to being a kind of, kind of like a gun for hire, I guess. Uh, the kind of jobbing actor. You said something on Twitter earlier today uh, about Paul Haggis. What's he done? Oh, he's directed every episode of Show Me a Hero, the David Simon uh, miniseries on HBO, which uh, ends tonight and has been uh, riveting stuff so far. Mm. So you're saying he he's kind of directed it and not had anything else? He's not written it or anything? No, it, it's written by David Simon and uh, William Zorky, who I believe worked on The Wire for, for a while and was a journalist. So, so yeah, so so Paul Haggis is the the guy who who you know is in charge of the the visual aesthetics of it, and he does, uh, I think, a very fine job. I think if you kind of look at even something like Crash, which is terrible in so many ways, it's a well put together film and it's kind of well directed. And it seems to me that he's someone who kind of has the the uh, misfortune to have wanted to be a writer director. Mm. He's not a particularly strong writer, but he can shoot and and kind of put something together quite well. This in itself is an interesting evolution in in kind of study. He's a he's a guy who won uh, best picture at the Oscars for Crash, which is still doesn't feel right saying it. Mm. But and now he's a kind of director of kind of TV show for hire. Does that say something about the strength of the material and the strength of television and the strength of the project, or does it say more about Paul Haggis? I think it probably says. A, a, a more about Paul Haggis than it does the material. I mean, the material is is great and it's is a, a fantastically written show, but his career post crash has been kind of just a lit- little litany of disasters. You know, as a director, he directed In the Valley of Ella, which actually I really like. I think that's a really good film, but it didn't do very well. And then he did The Next Three Days, which also didn't do very well. And then he directed. Uh, another film which was basically just Crash, but with Liam Neeson, uh, which I forget the name of, but it was like just one of those ones where lots of different people have things happen to them and it's all a rich tapestry and it was terrible. But, you know, he's someone who his career c- kind of peaked at that point and if, whether or not it's to do with Scientology hating him or if it's just the fact that he's picked bad projects, his career has really taken a nosedive to the extent where being offered the chance to direct the HBO miniseries, which, you know, is kind of, uh, you know, for for a script by David Simon is something of, you know, a privilege to get to do. It's uh, not exactly, it, it perhaps suggests that he's fallen to a stage where he'd be perfectly happy to accept that. Hmm. Yeah. Interesting. Interesting. Um, on a personal level, how has your film taste evolved? I kind of had a, an example of this very recently because I watched the Bella Tarr film, The Turin Horse, which is the sort of film that I think 
10 years ago I would have hated because it's a two and a half hour film which consists of I think about 75 shots there is basically no dialogue for the first 20 minutes and there's no meaningful dialogue for the first like hour and a half uh it's mainly just shots of this man and woman existing in this kind of hellscape of a world kind of falling apart and of trying to care for a horse and it's just like relentlessly bleak and it was like one of the most riveting films i've seen in a while and you know i think that is definitely the sort of film which 10 years ago if you'd kind of broken down its constituent parts to me i would have passed Mm. but uh, this time like all the breakdown of the things that it comprises made me think oh that sounds like a challenge Hmm. Yeah. So, uh, what what would it have been about that that you wouldn't have been attracted to ten years ago? Uh, I think the amount of effort it takes to watch it, right? Um, because I think it's very demanding for you to sit there and uh, experience the film purely visually, rather than having necessarily much in the way of character or story. You know, there isn't really a huge amount of story in the Turing Horse. It's just about you know. These, these this couple existing at the kind of this hugely horrible and inhospitable place and it, you it's really about you putting in the effort to uh, appreciate the, the the style of it and to kind of get a feel of you know kind of put your own interpretation on what the film's about rather than have it kind of explained to you i wouldn't say that uh, i was an undemanding film viewer when i was 18 but i i was the sort of person who you know if a film didn't kind of immediately grabbed me i would probably have just kind of turned it off mm. yeah I, i'm kind of if i think about my tastes i've kind of gone in and out of being shaped by other people's expectations i think my mm-hmm. film tastes like i mean before i went to uni to do film studies i kind of was a victim of my own hubris really i kind of thought that i kind of was well versed in film and everything just because I'd seen The Godfather um, yeah. wherein I arrived at film studies and uh, the people were talking about kind of stuff I'd never even heard of before or considered people would even enjoy um, and then I ended up kind of railing against that and saying I kind of oh, I don't want to watch Tokyo Story go away and then I kind of you know went the other way and kind of got more into genre stuff and kind of railed against what was being taught um, and then after that, I kind of got tired of genre stuff and went back towards appreciating this, the kind of traditional film studies stuff that you, you know, you're like, oh, actually, this stuff's really good. And I've kind of just needed to appreciate it outside the constructs of being told why it's good. And then as this has gone on, I've kind of fought with it and kind of uh, been into certain things at certain times and as I've got older I think perhaps that's part of it as well is, is kind of uh, getting a bit older is kind of now I just kind of I'm happy and comfortable to like what I like and mm. I'm all right not seeing everything and I think when I was writing a blog and, and kind of doing a bit more was a bit more active and things like that I was desperately trying to see everything and, and kind of not enjoying a lot of things and then I just thought, after a certain point, I'm not a film critic. I'm not being paid to see this. And why don't I just watch what I want to see and just be happy with that? And that's all good. I'm someone who watches slightly more films than your average person, and I enjoy them very much. Yeah, I think for me, something that's kind of come about in the last few years is being perfectly willing to accept that I am not the most 
kind of cine literate person there is, mm. you know, because I think for a time at uni, I hung out with people who were who liked films but weren't kind of into films the way that I was. Like I was spending huge amounts of my student loan on at FOP buying like cheap box sets of stuff, like, you know, watching old Billy Wilder films and things like that, or, you know, trying to track down every Hitchcock film and, and watch them all over a weekend and things like that, which was great. I got to watch a lot of really good films, but after uni, after I started hanging out with, you know, particularly um, Adam Batty, the, the uh, former uh, co-host of this show, uh, you know, people like in his circle realizing, Oh, yeah, I'm like I've not seen anywhere near as many of those sort of films, and initially that kind of is, I think, kind of a little bit galling or a little bit kind of sad because it really you realise, oh, I'm a, I was only cine literate compared to the people I was hanging out with, but then you reach a point where you're like, well, not everyone's seen every film, mm. you know, and people who have seen every film will probably live very depressing lives. So I think that I've seen a lot of films that I've liked and a lot more, and I, I hope to see more and kind of expand my horizons, but I don't feel that need to, you know, to try and be the most uh, well-versed and, and kind of most well-watched person in the room anymore. Mm. It was interesting. It's a discussion that I kind of saw about um, Letterboxd, uh, which is a service that uh, I use. Um, I mean, mainly because, I kept a film diary for like three or four years and it was just on an Excel spreadsheet. And then all of a sudden someone was like, have you been on Letterboxd? It's basically a, a service that does that for you. And it's kind of like a nice interface and stuff. And I was like, oh, awesome. Um, so having spent several hours uploading that that Excel spreadsheet manually, film by film, to Letterboxd, I am now fully committed to it and I've kept it up to date, you know, probably for the last kind of three or four years now. But where was I going with this? Oh, yeah. There are some people on there, because obviously it logs every film you've seen, there's some people on there who've claimed to have seen like fifteen or sixteen thousand films. Wow. Um and you know, either they're full of shit or they have spent literally every minute of their lives post fourteen watching five or six films a day. Mm. Which I fucking love films. That can't be good for you, man. No. I think like I, I think I average something like two to three hundred films a year generally usually it picks up a lot towards the end of the year when i start getting sent screeners and stuff mm -hmm. and that's exhausting <laughs> that's an exhausting uh, pace to keep up if you're like going and uh, working and having a life of any kind mm. so you know unless unless you are like a film lecturer or something then or or you're massively rich and you can rent out a screening room and watch just whatever you want then uh, it does seem like the sort of thing that would just take up a little too much of your uh you know, your, your kind of headspace. Mm. Just enjoy it, man. You know what I mean? Like, don't go nuts. It's like, I know, I still know people who are like, oh, I've got to try and watch a film a day. And just mm. like, why? Why? <laughs> just, it's fine. Don't worry about it. Like, it's all good. Crack a book. <laughs> you know, go outside. Uh, yeah. in, interact with three-dimensional people. It's all yeah, good. I've, I've certainly had that feeling because I've been working all these long hours at work just over the last week or so, just occasionally, you know, when I get in at a decent hour, just watching a Marx Brothers film, because I've got loads of Marx Brothers films saved on the DVR. Uh, and that's just very nice to sit back and relax and watch funny people be funny for a bit. Hmm. Um, and it's also kind of reminded me of another way that uh, I think I've kind of changed over time is that I'm, I'm more forgiving of films that aren't perfect. Right. Because I think when I was younger and like I started first getting into films, 
I, I kind of felt like I only really want to watch great films. You know, I want all films to be like The Godfather, where you look at it and you think this is a kind of an amazing work of cinema or something. And now I'm way less interested in a film that everyone agrees is great uh, and more interested in films that get like a very divided um, response or where people will be like, yeah, you know, there's parts of it that are really good and stuff that doesn't quite work because I think it's more interesting to kind of exact to think about a film that tries for something and doesn't work than it does for one that, you know, is, is just kind of good. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. I think I'm someone who, as I've kind of got older and kind of stopped caring less um, about what I'm doing and kind of what people might think or, you know, how, how many films I should have seen or whatever. Mm. I think I've, I've come round to liking films that I used to hate and a big, a big thing is kind of getting into musicals. Um, mm. something that like when I was younger and, uh, kind of, I, you know, I used to have an ex-girlfriend and she used to love musicals and, uh, kind of like Fred, Fred and Ginger stuff and kind of like all the Rogers and Hammerstein stuff and all that kind of caper classic kind of Hollywood musicals. And I just, I, you know, I watched loads of them and I was just like, this is, I hated it. And then kind of like removed from that and perhaps being a bit more comfortable in my own skin and comfortable with, you know, my tastes I fucking lap that shit up now. Like I will uh, kind of go out of my way to to kind of uh, see that stuff. There was Guys and Dolls was on the other day at two a.m. Uh, and I kind of caught the end of it. Uh, sorry, I caught the beginning of it, and then I was like, mm, I know it's two a.m., but I might plus one this. And I watched <laughs> the whole film. That's not that's not a short film, um, and that's something that you know I never would have done. But um, I don't know. I don't know whether it's an appreciation of kind of the artistry behind it, perhaps. Or whether it's just I'm kind of more comfortable enjoying uh, everything. You know, that kind of reminds me of that Peep Show quote when he's like, you know, my philosophy, Mark, if it feels good, do it. <laughs> and he says, what's that Gaddafi's law? Uh, but yeah, it's, <laughs> it, it, it reminds me, apply Gaddafi's law to, uh, you know, to your film tastes. If you like it, you like it. It's all good. Don't worry about it. It's fine. I, I think I kind of had the same thing with horror films. Like I wasn't, massively into horror films as a kid because i just didn't like being scared mm. like i didn't understand or, or realize the, the the cathartic effect that they could have or, or i didn't feel I, it seemed like something that was just kind of trashy and you know i wouldn't i wouldn't watch it and then at a certain point it's just like ah, this is really fun and also uh i used to be really really snobby about comedy like if anything had a fart joke in it or was kind of toilet humor based or or or, or seemed to be dumb to me, mm. I wouldn't care for it, and I would just kind of completely dismiss it. And in recent years, possibly because I've listened to so many uh, kind of podcasts, and a lot of podcasts will have that sort of thing, particularly sort of in the uh, you know earwolf kind of family. Uh, I've I've come to accept that just because something has a fart joke in it doesn't mean the people who are making it are stupid, or that the kind of comedy they're doing is dumb. Uh, mm. And think being able to realize to to kind of get over myself really. And to be mm. just kind of like, fuck, if it's if it's funny, then, you know, don't care. Don't worry too much about whether it's smart. Yeah. I mean, that still doesn't explain how you like Ted. Um, <laughs> but, you know, we'll come to that. Parts um, of Ted. <laughs> parts of Ted. Don't, don't, don't uh, tar me with the brush of someone who likes Ted in, in totality. Mm. <laughs> yeah, because that would be terrible. Uh, yeah, just the lesson to be learned here is just, you know, 
kind of, you know, enjoy it. Don't worry about it. It's all good. When you're younger, you kind of feel like it's massively important that you've seen certain things, or you've done certain things, and, you know, you're never going to read every book that's written. You're never going to see every film that's shot. You're never going to, you know, listen to every note of every album that's ever been recorded. So just fucking get over yourself and live your life. Yeah, I think I think for me, one of the, the things that turned out to be weirdly liberating was the depressing fact that, like, most of the silent films that exist were destroyed. Mm-hmm. Because once you realise that, it's like, oh, I can't, I literally can't watch every great film ever made because a bunch of them don't exist anymore. Yeah. And it's kind of like, once uh, you realise that, then you can kind of think, oh, actually, you know, I'm I'm fine with just watching a bunch of great films and stuff that I like that may not be great, but appeals to me. Mm. Yeah, realise that all those great silent films are gone and we're still left with Big Mama's House 2. <laughs> uh, which will forever exist um, in today's information age. So that's so that's evolution, everybody. Uh, we didn't once have to touch on, you know, any kind of Darwinism or any films <laughs> involving cavemen or dinosaurs, which is good. So let's do a bit of uh, shot reverse shot recommends. I would like to recommend an album and specifically a comedy album. Having seen uh, the film Tig last week, I know that Ed. Uh, is a big fan of uh, Tignatero, and I am too, only having kind of experienced uh, kind of stuff on, stuff like Comedy Bang Bang and things like that. But yes, she was kind of diagnosed with cancer and revealed it uh, on a, on stage in stand-up. And all this kind of uh, is detailed in the film Tig, which is on Netflix, if you can find it. And I watched that, and I was like, I kind of knew a bit about it, but not enough. And then after the film, I was enlightened, and I went back and downloaded the live album that came out of that show, live which is fucking awesome if you want to kind of listen to something uh that's it's kind of painfully revealing uh but also painfully funny but also kind of like possibly a kind of small sliver of a venn diagram that will kind of very rarely ever come up in which a you know a stand-up comedian finds out they've got cancer and the next day performs the set of their life that's the thing to listen to because it's quite amazing yeah, that that album is is incredible. I remember the. I I don't know. Think I've ever been more excited for an album than when that became available. Because for about a month before it became available, people were talking about the set and it's like, you know, if you weren't there, you didn't get to experience it, and then you could experience it, and it absolutely lived up to the hype. Mm-hmm. My recommendation is a film called uh, The End of the Tour, directed by James Ponsalt, which is about five days in the lives of. Uh, David Foster Wallace, the author of Infinite Jest and a lot of great uh, fiction and nonfiction, and Dave Lipsky, who was a uh, writer who pitched Rolling Stone and said, hey, can I spend five days with this guy that's being proclaimed kind of the voice of a generation and just kind of follow him around his bookstore and talk to him. And the film is an adaptation of that conversation, which uh, Lipsky recorded and which ended up not being turned into an article and then just kind of sat uh, kind of mouldering in part of his house for years until uh, uh, David Foster Wallace uh, uh, died in, in 2008 um, of suicide. And the film is uh, a, a rare example of a film about writers that isn't about writing. It is about two guys just having a conversation and they're two very smart guys and they're two very you know, literate guys, obviously, because they're writers. But they're two guys who are also perfectly happy to just kind of sit and talk about food they like and to go and watch broken arrow in the cinema and just kind of geek out about how much they like dumb action movies uh and it's just this really 
funny and engaging film with two really strong performances from Jason Siegel, who plays David Foster Wallace, and Jesse Eisenberg, who plays David Lipsky. And the, the film does a really good job of engaging with them as writers and uh, dealing with all the kind of the personal je- jealousies that emerge between them as a result, but also of just kind of a character study. And people have described it as a kind of a my dinner with Andre, but they're in a car instead of uh, in a restaurant. And that kind of gives a sense of the feeling to it. Mm, cool. It's one that we kind of said that we would look out for at the start of the year. And uh, I'm glad to hear that it's pretty good. Okay, cool. So that's it from us. Thanks for listening, everyone. If you liked what you heard, you can uh, find us on Twitter and Facebook and also our Podbean site, which is srspodcast.podbean.com. You can find links to all those kind of social media and all that good stuff. Subscribe to us on iTunes, all that jazz. Uh, We're also on Stitcher Smart Radio and the other one that I can never remember the name of, Ed. What is it? Player FM. Player FM, excellent. That's it from us this week. We're back next week and we'll be talking about Star Wars, which is something I've been excited about all year. So yeah, tune in for that one. Until then, it's goodbye from me. And goodbye from me. And goodbye from me. Goodbye from me.